Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, hey everyone. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Today on the program, my guest is Vivi Ganeshanathan, author of the novel Brotherless Night. As a diasporic person, people sometimes, if they're not Sri Lankan or connected to any Sri Lankan community of any ethnicity, people will give me a lot of authority to talk about Sri Lanka. And I think this is true of any... I don't know, any person with clear and strong ties to another place, like I would trust, instinctively, I would trust, say, a Greek-American person to know more about Greece than I would, right? But there's also, I don't know, I found that the amount of authority that I was sometimes given was beyond what I felt I deserved. In fact, that was like pretty common. And then on the other hand, kind of, there's another constituency that will kind of write off the idea that I might have anything to say or that I should say anything at all because I am diasporic and I grew up outside the country. I'm probably like pretty square in a lot of ways, but like a pretty solid way to get me to do things is to tell me that I shouldn't do them. Okay, that was Vivi Ganeshanathan, author of the novel Brotherless Night, available now from Random House. Brotherless Night is a spectacular, gripping novel about the Sri Lankan Civil War, told from the perspective of a young woman named Sashi, whose life and family life are deeply impacted by the pressures and tragedies and insanities of the conflict, which roiled Sri Lanka for the better part of three decades. This is a sweeping and deeply insightful and magisterial book that covers so much ground so well. I had a wonderful time meeting Vivi Ganeshanathan and talking with her about this new book. The conversation is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson. I've been talking about Margot throughout the month of February. I read it. I loved it. I met Wendell Stevenson. I talked to her on this program. I loved her too. This is a wonderful coming-of-age novel set in the mid-20th century. Margot is a young woman who is born into a dynastic family in New York City. There's an apartment on Park Avenue. There's a place out on Long Island. And Margot is quiet. She's an only child. She's a science nerd. 
she's very smart, she's a little bit confused, or maybe a lot confused, and she is alive in the 1960s with all of its tumult, all of its political and social and cultural change, and all of its new possibilities for women. This is an excellent, absorbing novel about a very interesting time in women's history, the world over. I love this book. It's called Margot. It is a novel by Wendell Stevenson, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. Go get your copy. Read it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. It is a listener-supported show. The entire archive of this podcast, more than 800 episodes and counting at this point, they are all available to listeners free of charge. There is no paywall. This is the way that I want it. I want these episodes, these conversations to be accessible to people without difficulty. But I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who get something from it, people who love literary culture and want to help perpetuate it. If that is you, I am counting on you to support this show. And I've tried to make that as easy as possible. You can support the Other People podcast for as little as $1 a month. That's it. A dollar. It's painless. It's easy. One dollar in the hat every month. It's a sliding scale. So one dollar, three dollars, five, ten, twenty, whatever you can afford. Over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. You can support the show. You can get merchandise as you move up the scale. It's easy. And it will help this show survive. So patreon.com slash other PPL pod help the show if the spirit moves you. You can also get other people merchandise, t-shirts, sweatshirts, baby clothes, the whole thing over at the show's website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. The t-shirts are great, by the way. They're soft. They fit well. They wash well. I have several of them. I wear them every single day. (laughs) I'm kidding, but you know what I mean. They're good. I like the t-shirts. If you want to sign up for my email newsletter, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com, or my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at either site. The newsletter goes out once a week. I will not inundate you with emails. It is essentially an enumerated list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, just sign up for the newsletter. It's free. If you would be so kind. I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. And if it's possible to write a review, write a quick review. This really helps. I would greatly appreciate it. It helps the show find new listeners. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? You can watch the Other People Podcast. You can watch my conversation with Vivi Ganeshanathan over on YouTube. Just go there, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. There are also video highlights of these conversations available on social media. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, the whole nine yards. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. If you have feedback for me, if you have something to say, the email address for the show is letters at Other PPL. Finally, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published just last year, less than a year ago. Or no. No, yeah, less than a year ago it published. It's uh, a work of autofiction. And if you want to read it, 
you can do so. It's in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you, if that sounds good. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest today is Vivi Ganeshananthan, author of the new novel Brotherless Night, available from Random House. Vivi, who goes by the nickname Sugi, is also the author of a novel called Love Marriage, which was long-listed for the Women's Prize and named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post. Her work has appeared in Granta, the New York Times, and the Best American Non-Required Reading, among other publications. She is the former vice president of the South Asian Journalists Association, and she has also served on the board of the Asian American Writers Workshop. Presently, she is a member of the board of directors of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies and the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. Sugi teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota, and she is the co-host of her own podcast called the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast, which is about the intersection of literature and the news. I am so pleased to share this conversation with you right now. It's a conversation with an author who wrote a book that truly blew me away. Here she is, folks. This is Vivi Ganeshananthan, and her new novel, once again, is called Brotherless Night. I started this book before I finished my first book, and I didn't really think I was going to finish my first book, actually. Um, which because, was called Love, Love Marriage. Which was called Love Marriage and which came out in 2008. And I had gone to my MFA program with a draft of that and kind of workshopped it and then put it away and then got interested in a little bit of research, which sort of relates to a scene fairly late in the book related to a hunger strike. And Wait, is this, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I read that you wrote the first part of this novel spring of 2004 after kind of stumbling into an intriguing bit of research the previous yeah. year. Is, is the hunger strike the bit of research? I was wondering what it was. The hunger strike is the, is the bit of research. And uh, it was a hunger strike that took place on a stage outside a temple. And it was so extraordinarily theatrical, every version of it that I read and in, in every history that I could find. And every time I talked to someone who, I mean, I would talked to people who had been there. Um, and I was... I, I couldn't stop thinking about that particular circumstance because it seemed so, so strange. I mean, it was because I think because of the uh, juxtaposition of the temple and the hunger strike and militancy, all of which might seem to be unlikely bedfellows, but I think really actually probably weren't. And also people's different views of how that story had gone, some of which is alluded to in the book. And so I was curious about what I could do with that. And I also knew that I... I couldn't shoehorn it into that first book. That would have made it very kitchen sink feeling. And so I I felt like it was probably something else. And then, and I guess this has been successful for me a number of times. I ended up writing it for a specific occasion, writing about it for a specific occasion, which was that I wanted to get into a, a class that I hadn't registered for, which was a novella class that Ethan Kanan was teaching at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I hadn't registered for it because I thought I'm not interested in the novella. And that was a that was actually not a good way to make that choice. And so I decided I did want to be in the class. All of my friends had made smarter decisions than me and were taking the class and it was full. So I went to Ethan and I said, if you let me in the class, I volunteer to go first. And I had no novella. And and he said, yes. And I didn't end up with a novella. I did end up with a pretty long short story, 
which was the hunger strike. And that was the first bit of it. And, and then the class was just really encouraging. And that was sort of the beginning of writing the novel. So your novel is about the Sri Lankan civil war or is that that is the backdrop. And we learn about its complexities through the lives of a particular family, the Kulentrins, I think is the way you might pronounce it. But forgive me if I'm messing it up. It's Kulentrin. Yeah. Okay. Kulentrin. So the protagonist of this book, whom I love, is named uh, Sashi. Mm -hmm. And she is our narrator. She is the only daughter in a family of four children, five children, five children. Five children. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, she's the, the baby girl or almost the baby in a family and she's got four brothers uh, and she lives in, a, in the town of Jaffna, mm-hmm. which is, I believe in North Sri Lanka. Is that right? Yeah. It's in, yeah, it's Northern Sri Lanka and it's, it's a, it's a Tamil dominated city. Okay. Okay. So, but this, this family and Sashi's experiences in particular are the vehicle through which you explore this war and the impacts that it has on the lives of ordinary people, which is, I know from poking around a little bit in interviews that you've done, this was the mission, right? Is to try to investigate how these kinds of events impact regular people and how the histories of regular people often never see the light of day. There's kind of like a Howard Zinn-like impulse here, right? Well, because it's so true, right? We go through we go through all of our schooling, we take history classes and we read works of history. And what's the old saying? Like history is usually told by the winners. And yeah. it's it's usually couched, you know, in vantage points that favor elites and all this kind of stuff. And in this book, we we really get like a human tour, if that's a way of putting it, uh, of what was happening on the ground in Sri Lanka you know, during these times. And I just like to hear you talk a little bit about that impulse and like how you arrived at it and what maybe some particular challenges were in trying to render it. In thinking about what I wanted to do with the book, I did know that I was kind of writing against a history of propaganda because it's also a book that's about the pressure of nationalism. And in Sri Lanka, you know, I talked was talking earlier about Tamil nationalism, and there's also Sinhalese nationalism, um, Sinhala Buddhist nationalism. And so I was writing against the narratives put forward by the state, which are often quite nationalist, um, Sinhala Buddhist nationalist, and then the Tamil nationalist narratives that had been put forward by certain strands of the Tamil community. And those were stories that erased a lot of people And if you diverged from those narratives, there were sometimes really serious consequences. So around the time that I had that access to the information about the hunger strike, I was also given, and I guess I have it here. (laughs) Um, And since we have, since there's, since there's video, I can use it as a little prop. I was given a copy of a book called The Broken Palmyra. And The Broken Palmyra is kind of a human rights classic. It's a nonfiction book that was written by four professors at the University of Jaffna, who were not trained in kind of anything like that of human rights documentation. And so they kind of taught themselves to do it. And <laughs> I have a copy now. That copy was, the copy I was given then was on loan. And then I did eventually get my own copy, which you can see I, I keep in bubble wrap. 
It's a rare and book. It's it's not. It's right? a rare book. It's a rare book. There it is. And and when I was in graduate school at Iowa, or no, actually maybe it was a bit later. I was anyway. I was looking for a, a used copy online, and I found one that was like thirty bucks. And I was amazed actually because not that many physical copies of it were printed, and most of the ones I'd seen were from university libraries. And it turned out that someone who had been the ambassador to Sri Lanka had died, and he'd had a copy of it, and all of these books about Sri Lanka. And a huge number of his books were at this used bookstore in the Detroit area. And they had this. And this book is like probably like $200 or maybe more. And I, as a graduate student or whenever it was that I got this, like probably couldn't have afforded that. And so I lucked into this copy that has these annotations from the ambassador also. Oh, wow. But anyway, so like I had this earlier copy and that's what this book does. It's really kind of obsessed with documenting the cost for ordinary civilians of this conflict, which went from, and I, I said when it started, 1983, approximately, but there's ethnic tension kind of before that leading up to leading up to 1983. And my book starts in 1981. And then my book kind of ends in like 1989, 1990, in the early part of the war, and then skips ahead to the very end in 2009. So the back end of the war is not in there, in part because just sort of civilian toll and involvement in that period of time is like was different. But so this book was my model for kind of like, how would you, what happened to ordinary people if this is like a militarized society, like all of a sudden your teenage son leaves the house and like goes to another country and receives trained, like receives arms training. Then he comes back to your town and he's somewhere pretty close by. You're maybe not exactly sure where, maybe he'll show up again, maybe he won't. You know, what does that feel like if people come in want your house for military purposes, right? Like there's other kinds of eminent domain. Uh, I think we're, you know, for familiar with the costs of that for some minority communities in the United States, like predominantly, I think the black community, like in Minneapolis, like the highway, right? I mean, the seizure of land is like a, is a way of, yeah, anyway. So like a lot of the book is about displacement. Some of it is about displacement, like just sort of the, the feeling that you might not be in your house at the moment that you you thought you would be that you might be asked to leave suddenly you might be in someone else's space that they were asked to vacate your kind of your ordinary things that you had in your ordinary life might become precious in a way that you hadn't anticipated well and i sh- i should say a lot of the things that you're describing are depicted in the book and impact the family at the heart of the book so having sons who as teenagers leave the family, go off, become militarized, change pretty dramatically. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but there is tragedy and loss in this book in great measure. The war obviously takes lives and there is also displacement. So all of these things come into play. And I think now might be a good time to have you just read a little bit from the book because this, this novel is so excellent at humanizing the costs of war and the complexities of war and the ways in which war changes people, changes families so tragically. So I'll just have you kind of introduce this little section that I'm going to have you read and then have you read it and we can discuss. So the section that I'm going to read is a little bit, maybe almost a third of the way into the book. And it's at a point at which the brothers are starting to have different choices about what they might do in response to political events and 
tragic incidents, they're having different reactions to those things as people have different reactions to tragedy. And so our protagonist, Sashi, is having a conversation with her next oldest brother, Selin, who's just like about a year older than her. And, and they don't get along that well. They kind of have very different personalities. So her brother is thinking of going to to India to train with Tamil militants. And, and that was where they were training at that time. And she's just realizing that a lot of the other boys kind of around her might be might be considering the same decision, including their friend Kay, who's another teenage boy who kind of lives down the road and is friends with her brothers. And yeah, so and they're also I guess there is. Yeah, they're reacting also to a tragic a tragic incident that I won't I won't spoil. Or no, I guess it's never mind. I will spoil it. It's right in the passage. <laughs> It's it's interesting actually because some of the reviews mention this and others don't, and right. I can imagine that it would be you would feel like you were in a bit of a pickle, like trying to decide. I I never really know whether I'm going to talk about it. It's always a game time decision. Anyway, the oldest brother dies, um, Niranjan, and he's he's kind of the one that everyone loved without condition. He was almost like a second father. Um, Sashi wants to be a doctor, and. He was a doctor. And um, so they're all having, that's the tragic incident. They're all having different reactions to. So I did not want him to go. And I did not want Kay to go. And I wished I could go too. I was as angry as them. Naranjan's death had devastated all of us. After my grandmother left, we became unable to talk to each other, perhaps because we had nothing to say except to blame each other and ourselves for what had happened. On some mornings, I woke up wanting to shriek at my father for sending us to Colombo. And I'll just break in here briefly to say, Sashi's oldest brother, Naranjan, has been killed in the 1983 anti-Thamal riots that are basically considered the beginning of the war. But now, Appa stayed at his outstation post on days when he would have normally come home. My mother strayed towards the borders of madness, speaking not to us, but to herself. Aaron turned contemplative. Dylan drew and redrew the library, and Selin was simply, quietly, constantly enraged. He did very little to express this, but even the smallest motions he made, pouring a cup of tea, turning a page, gave the impression of barely contained tremors. I miss the days of his casual temper. Our anger, which had nowhere to go, filled the space where Naranjan had been. I did not want Selin to go, because I could not bear the thought of losing another brother. I did not want him to go because I needed his anger beside mine. I wanted him to go because if I could not have revenge, I thought he should. If you're going to go, I said, and then stopped. I don't need you to stay. Do what you want. You always have. But if you are going to go, tell me before you leave. It took the government and the tigers together to make our lives so small. I remember how my three remaining brothers, who loved music and art and libraries and school, became quieter as the call of militancy grew louder. Their jokes dried up, as though politics had sapped all their humor. As siblings, we had cupped our hands around those tiny flames of shared laughter, the intimacies of family habits and histories. But then the lights winked out across the peninsula 
as boy after boy I had known and loved was extinguished or gone. So that short passage to me captures so much of the grief and tragedy and the complex pressures that are brought to bear by this civil war, by any war really. And it all happens inside of one family. All of this anger, like that line about how the anger goes where Naranjan had been, like that feels really emotionally true to me and kind of devastating. And I also think about the ways that each human being processes these things differently. We all react to grief differently. We all have different politics. Even if we mostly agree, we all have different politics and ways of responding, especially in times like these where you know, the politics of the time, it's like living in a kind of crucible, right? The stakes are so high. The decisions we make and the opinions we cultivate seem to have so much more import than they might during peacetime or more quote unquote normal times. So I just thought that that passage kind of gave a window into the human cost, which is not small. <laughs> yeah. I think that might've been, especially that line about the family habits and intimacies might have been one of the earlier ones I had written. It ended up being a pretty big surprise to me that the book ended up being about a family when I had started with The Hunger Strike because I hadn't initially thought of that. And it seems to be a lot of what people are responding to and also accurate to the way that at least the stories that I heard from people about their family members having very different reactions, taking different paths in response to these major ruptures in their lives. Well, it's a pretty big canvas that you're painting on. So like from a writerly perspective, the challenge that you gave yourself is not a small one, but to even to write a novel about this thing and to find a way in and to try to depict what it was like for ordinary people, even at, you know, 90,000 words or whatever, that's a huge challenge. And I think the decision that you made to go inside of one family primarily and to explore the impacts on it as a way of, um, I don't know, giving like an emblematic experience and an experience of a family that is emblematic of experiences that were happening all over Sri Lanka. That's as good a way as any, I mean, right. I mean, what else are you going to do? Like, unless you take like the third person omniscient perspective and just start, <laughs> you know, that's, that's even harder, right? Yeah. I think, um, certainly in relation to this war, I would be particularly hesitant to assume that point of view, which suggests an authority that Sashi herself is always kind of, she's, there are various points in the book where she's kind of cranky about explaining things, but she does explain them. So it's like a little bit of a way to have my cake and eat it too. Like here's, here's the boilerplate that you need to know. Mm -hmm. And also here's this character who's like, you, you want your explanations fine. Right. Um, so, are, Wait, are you talking about the little asides where she breaks out into the second person? Yeah. That was directed at me, right? Especially like a reader <laughs> like me. <laughs> I can I feel mean, that. <laughs> she's also cranky. I mean, she's cranky at herself. You know, she's she's sort of like, I mean, and I think it's, you know, it's how I, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the dilemma, right? And like, I, I do, I do go on podcasts and, and try to summarize the Sri Lankan Civil War in 30 seconds. And it's, and it's for all sorts of reasons, like we live in a real world. It's a question I'm going to get asked. That means that I've actually practiced the answer. It also means that I somehow am still mucking it up such that I have to footnote myself. <laughs> and then also, I don't know, like I 
could have memorized a 30 second explanation that I just say the same way every time. Then here is <laughs> also write it on your hand, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a Yeah, get a little tattoo. Actually, it'd be a, a very long forearm tattoo and I'll just start like looking down. But yeah, I mean, it's also like I, I had done this for my first book. And then I was like, wait, can I just like take a page from Love Marriage and stick it in there? And will anyone notice? <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to get away with that. <laughs> well, I think that Sashi is such a great character, such a winning heroine. And she's a great, like, I don't want to, I mean, I guess pro proxy for most readers, I would hope, like readers who are open to the complexity of war and the like incredibly difficult moral choices that people are faced with, ordinary people are faced with, that would not be easy for anybody. She brought me into contact with those kinds of choices and made things that could otherwise be simplified in media or in the press. She made those things much more dimensional and complex and, you know, kind of made all sides of this thing feel human. And at the same time, I think that there is something in her life story and her professional ambitions as a doctor and the fact that she's a young child going through school when this thing starts and you know the part of the success of this novel has to do with i think the reader worrying about whether or not she's going to get there and how is she going to make her way through this thing just the is she going to get to be a doctor? You know, I was rooting for her so hard. <laughs> She's a lovely character. Thank you. Um, that's nice to hear. I hadn't really thought about it in quite this way before, but I guess, right, if you're telling a story about a war and you tell it in third person omniscient, then anyone could die. And if you tell it in first person, then that person's going to survive. And certainly this is a heavily retrospective narration. So maybe it was another way of creating suspense, right? Like another big desire beyond just survival. And I think too, like... Just her particular consciousness and viewpoint and sense of morality and her keen intelligence, she's a great way in for readers to sort of examine these things and to experience them firsthand because she doesn't take the easy way. You know, she's not super reactive or hot-headed. She's a cool customer, you know, and she's very bright and she's big-hearted. And these things aren't simple, right? I mean, you talked earlier about the broken Palmyra. And just so I'm, I'm clear, is the broken Palmyra, was that the one that was written by the University of Jaffna professors? Or is that different? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Because like one thing that popped up for me when I was thinking about this book and thinking about Sashi, and in particular thinking about Anjali uh, Premachandran, the university professor character in the book, who I believe is based on a real figure named Rajani Rajani Theranagama. Theranagama, yeah. Uh, Theranagama, yeah. Okay. So there were these university professors who were collecting these histories and trying to document the impacts of this war on real people and who understood its complexity and the way that, you know, to make it a binary thing where it's just good versus bad or Thummel versus Sinhalese, you know, uh, that's, not a, that's not the whole story. And I think that these people were trying to tell it in its complexity and were resisting and, and wanting peace. It reminded me of the Vietnam War and the youth, uh, the School for Youth and Social Service, I think it was called. I just know about this. Um, it's a, it was like a Buddhist student group uh, organized, I think, and founded by Thich Nhat Hanh and his... Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. You know, friends in the Buddhist community. But it was, it was kind of functioning in a similar way to try to advocate for peace and to resist and to tell these stories and to really not take sides in a very explicit or militarized way. I should have, it should have occurred to me actually to look for a, a Vietnamese, like a counterpart since I've heard that metaphor so many times and it has never occurred to me to look. And so now I will go and look that up, which is great. There's always in a, in a conflict like this, especially a civil war, there's always going to be so many people who are resisting and unsure and uh, trying to maintain their humanity. You know, it can be difficult to do when things get this dark. Yeah. And yet there were always people, you know, during this period of time, people were doing all of the things that they normally do. They were studying and taking exams when university was open. They were falling in love and they were going to after school clubs and putting on plays. Yeah. I mean, all of those things were still happening. And so, I mean, it is also the book is set in Jaffna and, and that's not unprecedented, but it's not the most common choice for a setting in fiction set in Sri Lanka. A lot of the a lot of fiction is set in Colombo. There have been a couple of a couple of books sort of set in specific specific regions associated with the war. But Jaffna in particular, people sometimes, including within Sri Lanka, kind of ex- talk about it as though it's other. And to me, it's very familiar territory. And so I think I wanted also to kind of show the ways that it was very alive in this period. So we should talk a little bit about your uh, like heritage and personal history. Are you, do you have family from uh, Jaffna? I do. You do. Okay. And, and you are, I, I wrote this down, you are of Ilankai, Thumal heritage. Yeah, I'm specifically using um, that's like a political choice. So I'm it's it's Ilanke Thumal heritage, and so I think that's probably from my Wikipedia entry or something like that, or maybe maybe my <laughs> maybe my website. But uh-huh. um, I'm I'm choosing that word because there so there are some people who are like I'm a diasporic person, and often when people talk about the Thumal diaspora, they actually mean the Sri Lankan Thumal diaspora specifically. They don't people don't really use that term in the same way for say folks whose parents are from India. But there are lots of people in the Tamil diaspora who won't identify as Sri Lankan because they have a lot of sympathy for Tamil nationalism. And so they'll say that they're from Olam or something like that, which is um, which was really like a term associated with separatism, for example. So, But then 
the country name Sri Lanka is also controversial, like particularly the Sri. And so like me picking this way of identifying myself is like a way of saying that I consider myself Sri Lankan, but I'm doing it in Tamil. So it's like a, you'd have to like, there's all of this code, right? Like there's all of this, like for, I'm really happy that the book is educational for people. It's funny because I think that like, there's a lot of code built into the book that if you do know the terrain, like some people will get like that there's there are other meanings to some of these things so anyway like if there were yeah i wish that there were a shorter way to explain that too right well no but it's good i mean it's good to know it makes sense to me and you mentioned that you uh you know are part of the diaspora you're writing from the diaspora Mm -hmm. which you wrote a lovely essay about uh, in lit on lit hub the website thank you uh which i found it, it contextualized things and it added maybe a dimension to the read for me but i want to talk to you about that because I hadn't thought of it until I read what you had to say. I was like, oh, wow. So yeah, she, you know, she's writing this novel from outside and maybe that comes with its own set of challenges and criticisms that people might levy, you know, because you weren't necessarily on the ground in the midst of all this. And just, I think it's less about the politics of it and more about the creative responsibilities. You know, I think that's the part of it that I'm interested in is to take something on like this and to try to do it justice that's the big challenge right and can you just talk a little bit about how you navigated this issue of writing from the diaspora so i did yeah i wrote about it in this essay for lit hub in which i kind of was talking about right as a diasporic person people sometimes if they're not sri lankan or connected to any sri lankan community of any ethnicity people will give me a lot of authority to talk about Sri Lanka. And I think this is true of any, I don't know, any person with clear and strong ties to another place. Like, like I would trust, instinctively, I would trust, say, a Greek American person to know more about Greece than I would, right? But there's also, I don't know, I found that the amount of authority that I was sometimes given was like beyond what I felt I deserved. In fact, that was like pretty common. And then on the other hand, kind of, there's a, another constituency that will kind of write off the idea that I might have anything to say or that I should say anything at all because I am just diasporic and I grew up outside the country. And I think just sort of as an artist, I also, I think politically, I can't kind of countenance that. So, and I also just don't like being told that I shouldn't do things. I think um, (laughs) I'm probably like pretty square in a lot of ways, but like a pretty solid way to get me to do things is to tell me that I shouldn't do them. Like I will 100% end up doing that thing. Uh, I must have been a child parented with a lot of reverse psychology. So I think, you know, I'd had a lot of people tell me, or I had sort of heard a lot of people say that like the Tamil diaspora kind of has no business. And it's also true that the Tamil diaspora was responsible in many ways for financial support for the Tigers. And there's like political baggage that's attending that, the idea that I shouldn't say anything like, you know, people who emigrated by and large, in a certain period, coming from more privilege, economic privilege, caste privilege, educational privilege, all kinds of privilege, the privilege to leave. And then some of those people sending back money for other people's children to die. That was that was a that was the critique. And I think a lot of that was valid. So then I think also, you know, I was writing historical fiction about a period of time. It's historical fiction, but it's like 1981. So it's not that long ago. So one of the advantages of like writing about a period of time that's that recent is that you have not just the library, you have the people who are alive, who were there. 
So you can talk to all of those people. You're also accountable to them. Like if you write about a period of time that's so far in the past, like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln's not going to complain when you write a novel <laughs> in his perspective. Right. Like he's not going right. to, he's not going to, you know, go create a Reddit thread about hating you. So I think that it was a huge resource and also like an accountability thing for me. And I was in conversation with a lot of those people who were generous and, you know, as much as I think I wish that I were fluent enough in Thummel to say write in Thummel. I don't write in Thummel. I write in English. And to think about the ways that English is a Thummel language also, like many, many Thummel speakers also speak English. We're educated in English. like, And I don't know, to think about that as a problem and like how to put that in the fiction. So like the book also, like one of the things it does is like note slippage between languages in some conversations. Like this is a part of the story where like they're speaking in Thummel because the conversation is so sensitive or like right, this right. is a part where they're talking in English. You know, I can't tell you the story in Thummel, but, but this is what was happening. So like that was some of the way that in the form I would kind of account for it. And then also that like cranky explaining, right? Like that's a diasporic problem. Like, oh, I've suddenly become the spokesperson. That's fun. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, there's a line, uh, a line from the essay, I believe, where you say, quote, as some people acknowledge hierarchies of grief, others consider hierarchies of authenticity. But Americans, particularly those from dominant communities, are often not very good readers of hierarchies of authenticity, believing them to be simpler than they are. So this is kind of a related point, I think, right? Where you're the diasporic uh, author and people are often looking to you to sort of parse this stuff. But, you know, I think America in general has no idea what's going on in other places in the world, but then might, you know, see a movie or read a book and suddenly start jabbering with all this authority. <laughs> like, you know, I think I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, I think that's, that's about right. I think a lot of my own beefs on this point have to do with, I don't know, it's like Americans for sometimes are really slow to remember that other countries might have minority populations. I'm like, where did, where did you think, I don't know, did you think that it was just homogenous? And I don't know, like, it's just, it's a miniaturization of imagination, of, of imagining that I don't think, I mean, I am a minority from, or my, you know, my parents are ethnic minorities in the country that they emigrated from. And I am a minority here. And so even like in an American context, when I, if I talk about Sri Lanka, like I am not talking from the point of view of a diasporic person of the dominant ethnicity. And then of course, there's also, I mean, I have friends who are of, of, of mixed ethnic heritage and that's very common. That's also a thing that people can't, sometimes can't like their imaginations don't go that far. And so, you know, my friends who who do have um, and, you know, I have relatives who are of mixed ethnic heritage and, and speak multiple languages. And and that's also very common. So like all of that was like I didn't want to sort of make it like token representation. I did want Thummel people in Jaffna to be the center of the book. But there are, for example, like there's a there's a pretty important Muslim character in the book who I, who I feel very fond of. And, you know, there's, 
there's a couple in the book that have like a brief but pivotal role and they're they're singalese and thummel and they're and they're married and they have a kid and and she doesn't regard them as unusual and she doesn't like take a lot of time to explain them necessarily and but they're they're there and 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 she I think also that sometimes like when Americans read other countries, those countries are flattened down to like one point. Like you, like a, like a novel. And I think I may have said this in the essay, like a, I don't know, like there's so many, a novel set in Beijing is not the same as one set in Shanghai. Right. We don't, we don't talk about them differently at all. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And I think anybody who reads your book would have a hard time coming away being able to flatten Sri Lanka. I will say too, as an American reader, that something your book did, and I don't know if there was any intentionality in this from your perspective as the creator, but something I could not help but feel as I was reading about this Sri Lankan civil war is I could not help but make some comparisons in my head to the political divisions and tensions and the violence or the hints at violence that we see in the United States right now. It's not the same, obviously. We haven't broken out into a civil war. But what just this week, I want to say Marjorie Taylor Greene was calling for a national divorce and this sort of thing. And I sensed a... I guess it gave me maybe like a way, a deep way to imagine what that kind of thing might be like should it unfold. Did did America... I guess you've been writing this thing for so long. It's almost like America you know, uh, caught up to you in a dark way. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like sure. things sort of deteriorate, things sort of deteriorated here as you were finishing the book. Right. So I don't know. Did that, uh, did that ever occur to you? That sort of thing or not at all? There were moments. No, no, no. Especially, I mean, especially late in the writing, a hundred percent, you know, and I think that there, are, I'm probably not the first person to think of, um, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was the president of Sri Lanka, and Donald Trump in kind of the same space in my mind. They occupy similar real estate in my brain. And then late in the writing of the book, um, George Floyd was murdered. I live in Minneapolis. So I was in a place also where there was there were the uprisings. There was a lot of like civilian resistance to militarization of society. And that was important and powerful to see. And to see the different ways that people tried to help and contribute to that effort and people's different capacities and and fears about participating that was like a that was a strange and powerful like a strange and really like important place for me i think to be writing in yeah i mean so so much has happened uh, in the period of time that i've written this book yeah but i mean that was that was one thing i mean that that was a moment where you know there're like choppers flying over minneapolis and there's like gas and they're using all sorts of stuff on reporters they're using it in different neighborhoods there are people leaving their houses because you know their children can smell things and i'm, I'm just like oh and right now i'm writing a scene in which this happens <laughs> right, right this is strange right. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i feel like that happens sometimes writers can be kind of weather vanes or something like there's something like i'm willing to believe that there is something deeper happening sometimes where an author's work can be like unintentionally predictive or can be tuned into some frequency. It makes a certain sense to me when you're doing this much deep thinking and kind of meditating on something that 
it might be because you're sensing you're sensing it somehow, like coming down the line. I don't know. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Like I feel like it's not the only time I've had a conversation like this on this show. And I've I've had instances in my own writing where it won't be like super predictive, but you'll just find these weird synchronicities sometimes. Like sometimes it can be something from the past even, or you're discovering something in research that totally correlates with what you're doing that kind of freaks you out. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like, no. Yeah, for sure. I guess the other thing that I would mention here kind of in that line is there's all this university stuff and I teach at university and we are of course in a moment when education is under attack and like, you know, the things we assign to our students or what we say in classrooms and surveillance has um, like community surveillance, people who are parts of civil society surveilling each other. Right. And that happens in the book. And that was definitely on my mind. So I would just like to take a moment now to say hello to everyone who is surveilling us on this podcast. <laughs> well, welcome to the Other People Show. <laughs> Glad to have you. Thanks for the download numbers. Uh, but I I, uh, I want to talk to you about the word terrorist uh, because this factors into your book. I know the New York Times Review sort of focused on this to a pretty strong degree. But it, you know, right at the beginning of the book, there's a great opening line, which of course I cannot repeat verbatim. Uh, maybe you have it memorized or written on your little card. Can you? Do you have it? I recently sent a letter to a terrorist I used to know. Yeah, that's how the book opens. So great opening line. And you know, it's worth, while we're talking about like, uh, like America's difficulties with reading other countries and cultures and surveillance and the sort of crazy media culture that we often have to deal with in this country. Like this is another thing that your book does so well uh, is it takes a word like that and it refuses to simplify, right? It brings, it brings like the, that word, uh, into like the human realm <laughs> as opposed to like the what's the word for it you know i'm thinking of like george bush talking about like the axis of evil like this binary way of thinking this way of otherizing this way of oversimplifying this way of sort of drawing conflicts into you know good versus evil all these ways that you know political leaders in particular a certain kind of political leader or media figure will will do as a way of ginning up support or getting ratings. And your book cuts against that. And I appreciated it for that. Thank you. I hope that it also does that while being critical of the things the militants did, because I mean, I think, you know, there's um, someone had said to me that like, I want to, I want to talk about when people do things that are wrong. I don't like the word, terrorism because it sort of is trying what it's trying to do is put people beyond the realm of discussion like put what they want what has happened to them then it doesn't matter you can do anything you want to them like it's suddenly right um like sri lanka has had a prevention of terrorism act since like 1972 and it has been used to justify all sorts of am i allowed to swear in your show yeah of course <laughs> terrible shit just yeah. fucking ridiculous shit like they will just detain people and not say why and then have them detained for interminable periods of time and it's just a way it's sometimes it's a way to punish people and just i it's you know disproportionately used against you know you can guess who and and i think that um so in some ways like 
sometimes I would see things happen in the United States and be like, well, Sri, Sri Lanka is ahead of the curve on this one. And um, <laughs> so I don't like that language. And someone had said that it was, and I don't remember who it was in all of the conversations that I had, but that that it was maybe not right to talk about terrorism unless you were also going to talk about state terror, right? Like terrorist is also used, it's almost used to cast someone beyond the, like it means that you're no longer a civilian and it means that the state is not accountable to you. Like a civilian is someone that the state is accountable to. And so like they've cast you outside the realm of society almost like you're like you're not acceptable society, but they're never like they're never held to account. And like governments are doing all sorts of things like that all the time, like the drones, like all of those unmanned killings of civilians. And so like, but that that's state terror, but we don't use that language. So if we're not going to use that language, then we have to find a different way to talk about this too, which doesn't mean that I think like, right, there's also a number of instances in the book in which within the family and beyond that as well, one of the things that people want to talk about and that the tigers don't want them to talk about among other people, um, among other Tamil militant groups is the violence committed against civilians by the Tamil militants who are, you know, who in, in many cases were like, there's, I mean, I'm, this would be spoilers also, but just like, right. They're not right. They're not always um, attacking combatants. So it isn't that I don't think that we should talk about that either. Like it was really important to me that the critique of the tigers that came out of civil society, that came out of Tamil civil society, the tigers killed a lot of Tamil civilians that that was also the, ti the tigers even killed each other. I mean, like this is the, you, yeah. the, your book. Your book is great on this. This is why I, I loved it so much is that it, it draws into focus, the chaos, <laughs> like war is so chaotic and it, uh, it has nothing to do with binary thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's like the opposite of that. It's like the fog of war or whatever you want to call it. Like it's just craziness. Human craziness is what war really is at its heart. Yeah, I think that that first page was just like kind of a way to say like, here's the language that you've been using and I guess we'll start with that. And, but like, it's not going to suffice. Right, right, right. And yeah, I mean, I think like it, it brought to mind for me too. I remember like, I have these kind of like, vague memories of the early aughts and I, you know, in the aftermath of nine 11. And I remember, I want to say it was Carl Rove sort of mocking people, I guess, mostly people on the political left who sought to quote unquote, like understand the quote unquote enemy, uh, as if that were somehow, uh, like a, a bad move or like a, a, a mark of having like low character, like who are, like, why did these people hate us? You know, like so much that they would fly a plane into a building, you know what I'm saying? Like just, just right. wanting to understand why it happened to wanting, wanting to understand who these people were as human beings, not to condone anything, but just to sort of arrive at a deeper understanding so that we might be able to prevent these things, you know, and so on and so forth. And that was just to a certain kind of person, I guess that's just, a sign of weakness or something, but I feel the opposite. And I feel like your book is the opposite of that. Thank <laughs> <Impulse>. you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like from a craft perspective, right? I don't know. Like if, if you were workshopping Carl Rove, you would be like, yeah, now you've created a way that like this entire set of characters has unintelligible motivations. And like, you want that for some reason. 
Like you think that like their wants are just impenetrable. Right. Yeah. Like what a, what a lazy, th- what a, what a lazy approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So try harder. Carl. Anyway. Yeah. Try. Good thing. He's not a novelist. Right. Or maybe he Jesus. is. I don't know. I, who knows? These guys all have like a weird novel in their drawer somewhere. Oh but. God. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. So the, the writing of this thing, you know, we've talked, I think a bit about this earlier and we've sort of been touching on it as we go. Like this is a big canvas that you're painting on and you gave yourself a big task. And I know, uh, from my research that the plot of this book changed several times. The Sri Lankan civil war itself ended in 2009. So, you know, that has to impact the work that you're doing. That's when, right. When you were in the middle of it, you know, at least in in terms of the timeline, right. You wrote this for 20 years and 2009 would be close to the middle. So can you just like from a writerly creative perspective, the endurance that it took you to finish this and to adjust on the fly and to accept that certain things weren't working. I would imagine you had to cut a lot of stuff and add other stuff in. And there might've been moments when you thought you were close to finishing and you actually weren't like, can you just talk about that? (laughs) Doesn't that happen with every book, even if you like it? (laughs) It, Yes. Yes. But I think a book like this, maybe, maybe more so, you know, to get it right. Like it, it, it is a beautifully plotted book. It is beautiful line by line. Thank you. And it just feels, to me anyway, like it just felt note perfect. And to get it a story this big into that form, I just have to believe, required a lot of patience <laughs> <laughs> and in, and just like endurance. Like, can you just talk about that part of it, the changes that it underwent and maybe the emotional aspects of having to respond creatively. Like definitely a lot of different things happened over this period of time. The Indian Ocean tsunami was close to the beginning of the writing of this book and it ended up actually briefly in Love Marriage. Yeah, the Raj- the Rajapaksas took power, um the Easter bombings happened, all sorts of shifts in the war happened. There was a ceasefire and I mean particularly the ending of the war which was like a thing that I hadn't really been able to conceive of. Like I had like my first conscious, like my, I think my first memory is like of the, of something related to the war. And so like, I didn't have an idea of how my mind even worked beyond that. And it was great. It wouldn't mean on the level, it was, it was great to find out. And also the way that it came to a conclusion was, um, was really brutal. So I think that. How so? Well, towards the end, and Anukarud Pergasam wrote a novel that is um, kind of set in this period of time. There was, after 9-11, the Rajapaksa family, and specifically Mahinda Rajapaksa, came to power in Sri Lanka, um, was elected on the strength of kind of a promise to crush the tigers. And they, they did that with like a pretty brutal military push, which towards the end of the war meant that a number of Tamil civilians were trapped between the tigers and Sri Lankan security forces. There was a no-fire zone, which was unilaterally declared by the Sri Lankan government. And then they also shelled parts of that. And Anugarud Pragasam's first novel, The Story of a Brief Marriage, is set in the no-fire zone. So like, I think the the plight of those civilians, I think, was on a lot of people's minds, and specifically the diaspora people. Is this the scene in the book? I mean, I don't want to spoil too much, but this is the beach. Is that is that what you're talking about? Like the end of the war? 
Am I remembering? Yeah, correctly? I mean, there's there is a portion where, I mean, Sashi in 2009 is an ER physician in New York City, and the book the book starts with you knowing that, and towards the end of the book, you see her watching the end of the war from New York, and she is thinking about that space. So I think that like once the war had ended, it was impossible that the end of the war would not be in the book. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of patience and endurance, like I don't know that I always exhibited that much. Well, you, d- you did en- enough to make it through 20 years. So don't don't knock yourself too much. <laughs> I mean, I think that there were a lot of people who like probably thought like, I mean, maybe it would have been smart for me to go to another project and come back to learn some of the things I needed to learn to do this. And instead, I just like really learned everything in the space of this book, like by messing up a lot, by by throwing out hundreds of pages. As you mentioned, I felt myself at the beginning of writing this book to be a writer who was bad at plot. And that was something I both wanted to work on and something I felt was necessary for the story because everyone I knew who had lived through this period, well, I was a fucking crammed with plot. Like people would be like, take that out. It's too much. Too much is happening. The pace is ridiculous. If someone had been like putting their life in workshop, you know, and that had happened to me, actually, like an early, there was an early bit of this that I'd taken to workshop and all four brothers died. So spoiler, that is not what happens in this book. (laughs) But that is where actually where the four brothers came from, from that sort of line that my subconscious gave me. And like someone, I remember someone in the class sort of being like all, maybe, maybe after class in a conversation being like, all four brothers die. Is that believable? And I was like, oh, shit, it is. <laughs> like, it definitely is. And I don't know. So I kind of knew that, like, I would have to, like, like my fear of plot was connected to a fear of, like, like it's cause and effect, right? And once you make a choice, like, then all of these other dominoes fall behind that. And then you're, like, maybe either in a great spot or, like, a wicked pickle. And I was, I think, for a long time, like, really afraid of plotting the book. And then after so, a while. Okay. Let me just stop you because yeah. I think so many people who write literary fiction are quote unquote bad at plot. I've said this about myself. I've had similar aspirations where it's like, I want to get good at plot. I just talked to Rebecca Mackay on this show and she's a literary writer who's great at plot. Yeah, she's great so at I was plot. Fo- I was, yeah, I was like focusing on that with her. But like, what did you learn? Because this book is great on plot. Thank you. Uh, so like, you know, you talked about, you, you were just talking about some of the stuff that you were doing and how, you know, it's cause and effect and you make choices and then have to deal with those choices on the page. Is there anything else for listeners that you could point to and for me uh, <laughs> that you learned about plot or like the particular like lessons or like uh, blocks that you had or you know what I'm saying? Like things that you previously were doing that you had to change in order to get better. I was often thinking of discrete incidents like this happens and then this happens and then this happens as though have you ever have you ever sewn anything I mean very long I mean maybe in school or have something you, have or you like ever, a have you ever tried to like tie a knot on like a piece of string yeah and yeah. and so if you're if you're threading a needle you need the knot to be a certain size so that the thread doesn't go through and you can actually like sew your clothes or whatever right and this is like weirdly hard because if you tie two knots to get them to land on top of each other is like not the easiest thing to do so i think i was plotting like having a string with a bunch of different knots spaced at like weird spaces from each other none of them on top of each other and i think that like now i'm like mixing my metaphors horribly but i'm gonna do it anyway (laughs) it's okay but like the math has to carry forward like if I don't know, Naranjan's death, which I've already talked about, is like a good example. Like he dies pretty early in the book. And like 
that death has to carry forward for the whole rest of the book. Like people cannot forget that he died. They can't forget him because they wouldn't. They wouldn't have forgotten. Right. And like they would be right. making their choices in the shadow of that plot point. So it's not like what happened, like what happened, like my former colleague, Charlie Baxter, I guess would call these one way gates. Right. And so I think what I was really learning was the value of the one way gate that like he dies and there's no going back. And like everyone is, everyone is different forever after that point. I want to just say the thing that just occurred to me as you were saying this is that is the phrase slowing down. (laughs) Like once something like that happens, maybe part of the creative process afterwards for a writer who's trying to be good at plot is to make sure to slow down and really deeply consider uh, all these cho- like all these previous choices and their impacts you know what i'm saying like uh, like it just there's inherent complexity to it and maybe when a book is bad at plot it isn't paying homage to that like Charlie talks about Captain Happen, and then I invented like my version, which is Captain Consequence, who's like Captain Happen's friend who's like running along behind him trying to catch up or something. And right. you know, like I like when you have the big event happen, there has to be the aftermath and like the debris of of the explosion. And also just I think a certain maybe really good writing, you know, there's a certain psychological an emotional intelligence at work because not everything that a character is going to do in the aftermath, say of a deep loss is going to be explicit as like an explicit reaction to that loss. It could be something totally at a remove, like, you know, six, 10, 12 degrees of remove from that event. But the way in which the character responds will carry within it the, that deep loss. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel like I maybe it's like, it's like some subconscious thing that's happening, but it makes, that makes a sense, certain sense to me. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. And I mean, it was funny because I think I had realized it kind of early in the plotting and then Whitney, my podcast co-host had read a draft of this novel for me and he totally called me on. There was an incident that like Sashi sees something very violent and then there's, there was no consequence for it. And he was like, Sugi, <laughs> like, wouldn't she tell someone about that? And I was like, oh, right. I have an emotional logic problem. Like, right. It's like, she's a, per- like, how could she have seen that and not said anything to anyone? Was this on the, the side of the road? I don't want to spoil it. Was this the side of the road? Okay. Yeah. 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 Good choice. Good. Whitney, credit <laughs> for, for catching that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just like the, the emotional logic of that world. Like if you saw that, you would totally, you would say something to someone. You would need to process it in some way. So like just to review, it's about cause and effect and carrying forward. It's about, what did did you call it? Happen? uh, Mr. Happen? Charlie calls it Captain Captain Happen, like that you have a character who like makes things happen. Um, That's Captain Happen. And then I made up Captain Consequence when I was talking to my students like last year. I was like, where's your cat? You know, like who's the person who's like, I don't know. Is there there a way you can manifest like the consequence for the people? Like what is, Yeah. Captain Consequence. Hmm. It's not as well formed as Charlie's. <laughs> <laughs> I like it though. Thanks. I like I like this image of him like running to keep up. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about Sashi a little bit uh, because another aspect of this book, which I've mentioned briefly that I love so much is her aspiration to be a doctor. And I cannot think of anything that I've ever read that idealizes and 
uh, articulates the highest aspiration of anybody entering the medical profession better than this book. Like it moves me. I'm not a doctor. Like I, you know what I'm saying? I have, in case you didn't know, (laughs) I am not a surgeon or any of this, you know, and I have mixed feelings about the medical profession and just the medical system in this country in particular, you know, it can often leave me wanting, you know, and I can feel like the highest aspirations of Sashi are what I want so badly from the doctors I come into contact with. And I don't always feel it. It's like this feeling in America where it's like, okay, I've got seven minutes, you know, <laughs> like, let me give you your physical and push you out the door and charge you $400. It's like, whoa, you know, and she is someone who is so kind hearted and just good at her core and wants to heal people regardless of their politics, regardless of their gender, regardless of their, you know, nationality, whatever it is, she is just a helper. And, uh, I love that about it. I, I like flagged multiple passages where she's talking about her love of medicine. And I found myself wondering like, wow, is Sugi like super, is there like some like unrealized aspiration? Did you want to be a doctor, but it never happened or did, no, no, because you write so well about it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a doctor. I just play one in this novel, but I feel like <laughs> I am fortunate to know a lot of physicians. And I think, you know, as in a lot of other communities, I think the profession of physician is accorded like a significant and distinctive respect. I mean, sometimes in sometimes in problematic ways, but in other ways, like ways that may, make a lot of sense to me. I think I've been fortunate to know a lot of doctors who are Sashi-like in their intent and care, their conscientiousness, their generosity. And so that was them. And a lot of those people were, and my father, I should say, is one of them. And so the doctors that I knew were sometimes people that I was calling up and saying, like, is this medically plausible? And, you know, and of course, I did also my internet research sometimes. And and there's definitely like no, I'm also just a person who's watched a lot of medical TV shows. I don't know, but yeah. but I, well, I was but I mean, trying listen, to listen. If your if your dad's a doctor, I think people who grew up with a family member who's a physician. I just talked to uh, Iobami Adebayo, and she has a character in her book who's a doctor and wrote so well about it to the point where I was like, whoa! And then she's like, yeah, you know, my mom and like two of my siblings are doctors, and I basically grew up in a hospital. So I was like, oh, okay. You I know. find them so comforting. Uh-huh. <laughs> like the, hospi- the yeah, hospital. I'd love an ER. Like nothing better than an emergency room. <laughs> <laughs> but while I'm talking with you about this, I, I feel like I should. I want to read a passage, if I may. I'm going to read to you this sure. passage from your book. It's actually late in the book, but it it gets to the beauty of the writing about Sashi as a doctor slash healer. And it gets to, I think, her conception of what that means. She says, I held the pieces of her earlobe together and tried to make the stitches small. She was right. Doctors resolve to relieve pain, but pain is information, and to lose it can mean losing something valuable. Pain draws a map, and if your body hurts, then your mind is occupied and cannot think too deeply about what has happened to you. I was trying not only to ease her pain, but also to make her scar as small as possible. It should have been obvious to me that she no longer cared about the evidence of damage, but perhaps that was part of my job, to care on her behalf. 
That's lovely. Like I want a doctor like Sashi, (laughs) like, you know, we all doctors should be like this, but it's also just very intelligent. You know, the way that pain is information, pain draws a map, the way that patients, especially in situations like this can often not have the wherewithal to advocate for themselves. Uh, they could be in mental states that are, uh, you know, not the greatest, shall we say. And it's the doctor's responsibility to step in in that case. And unless there's a family member, I guess, who could do it. But, you know, if it's just you and the patient, then it sort of is your responsibility to care where maybe the patient does not care or cannot care. So I just hadn't thought about it that way. But your book has many moments that kind of draw the medical profession uh, in this very, like, deep and thoughtful way. And uh, I love that. (laughs) I think it's a description in some ways of shock, Mm -hmm. that paragraph. And yeah, I I have been fortunate to talk to some medical humanities people in the wake of the publication of this book, and that has been particularly interesting. Have they responded well? Yeah. So far? I I think they they told me that. I mean, I don't think I I made any glaring medical errors, for example. But I also think that like, yeah, I think hopefully it's, yeah, hopefully it's about medicine in a way that is useful. Totally. And I'm wondering too about the reaction from the Tamil diaspora, like readers from the Tamil diaspora or people, I don't know if people in Sri Lanka have reached out to you. Have you gotten feedback on the book that's been meaningful or interesting or surprising in any way? I have. I guess uh, the book came out January 3rd and we're talking sort of close to the end of February. The book comes out in the UK and kind of the former British Commonwealth the end of June. So Sri Lanka, India, I think it's available there now as an ebook and as an audiobook. So I th- yeah, people are starting to people are starting to finish it. And I have gotten some really kind notes from folks who think I got things right, which means a lot to me because like as we've discussed, I did not grow up in Jaffna. I am not a doctor. And yeah, I so none of none of the details come from my personal history in an obvious way. And so I think that particularly to hear from people who are connected to Jaffna that they feel that I have captured that place is very meaningful to hear. I mean, listen, I'm about as far from an expert on all this as you can get, but I coming away from this book, I have to believe that this book will be received and remembered as like a very meaningful contribution to Sri Lankan civil war literature, fiction and none. I have to believe. I mean, like, thank you. I would hope anyway, I'm such a fan of it. And it gave me such a great education. uh, As I've said, I think you'll hear that from a lot of readers, no doubt. And such a moving book. Like just like, you know, I was so invested in these people and was, like I said, like I have not rooted as hard for a protagonist as I was rooting for Sashi. I mean, uh, you know, I I was practically like doing cheers. (laughs) (laughs) She She needed that. Yeah, she did. She did. But you know, wonderful, wonderful novel. And I always ask people, what they're working on. It's like the rudest question. It's like, okay, so you got this one done. What's next? It feels especially rude considering this book took you 20 years <laughs> to now be like, all right, let's, let's go, Sugi. Like you're on the clock, but some, sometimes <laughs> writers have things going you know, simultaneously, right? So maybe you have another book sure. in the works. I am sort of wrestling with this because I, I mean, I think some part of me does feel like I should put my nose to the grindstone immediately. 
And then there are people in my life who have indicated that I should take a break. I am interested in, I think I have sort of like a very nascent short story collection-ish and maybe also a very nascent essay collection-ish, some of which, you know, that has that has material that has been published, say, in journals and stuff before, and that might sort of lend itself to some sort of coherence. I guess I have to figure out what coherence looks like in those forms to me because those are not forms I've tried yet. Um, well, and I, and I, I think that's part of. I want to interrupt because something I meant to yeah. ask, but it, I almost forgot, and I'm glad that I didn't, is the fact that in 2021 you lost the use of your hands. Mm-hmm. So for a writer, for anyone, this is uh, difficult. But for a writer, you know, who is presumably typing as most of us do these days, that's difficult. I'm wondering if that has impacted your ability to work. Has, has the use come back at all? Like, you know, where 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 are things with regard to that? And can you give listeners maybe just a brief like thumbnail of what happens so they understand? Yeah, um, I have. I mean, the quickest way to describe it is just pandemic overuse injuries to both arms that sort of first manifested in April 21 and have pretty consistently limited the use of my hands and arms for mostly like daily simple tasks ever since. And there were moments when it was bad enough that you'd be like, I'll take a sip of this coffee very quickly and put the mug down again. And it's kind of like a lot of door opening that I'm interested in doing, et cetera. And, you know, some of it's just like, if you're at home more, there's like twice as many dishes at home. And so lots of little things kind of accumulating to put stress on my arms in ways that, so it's like a bunch of different injuries that have sort of compounded And there have been various points where it's improved. Maybe like a month and a half ago was actually pretty good. And then I got kind of complacent and overconfident and did a bunch of regular things and then flared myself right back up again. Um, So it's an inflammation issue? Like it's a... Some of it. Like I have bone spurs, um, but I also have like just sort of a lot of tendonitis and swelling and... So like I have tennis elbow and golfer's elbow in both arms and then the bone spurs. And then um, I had an impinged nerve at one point. So like a lot of it is inflammation. And and sometimes like you can't really tell what it came from. Sure. And like at this point, I have no idea what my arms look like at a pre-swelling size. Like I don't. So sometimes I can't tell. So I just have tried to kind of, you know, figure out ergonomic ways to do things or alternative habits or so I walk my dog with a waist leash and I don't pick her up no matter how cute she looks. That's not true. I totally pick her up and sometimes that's what flare, <laughs> flares up my arms. I'm a sucker for her. Yeah, you know, I, I used to play tennis. I played the saxophone, played the saxophone past tense. I never really liked driving and now I deeply hate it and I can't really ride a bicycle for very long. So there's a lot of limitations and yeah, typing is one of them and it's, I think the, I'd had understood, had known, but not understood the way that the motion of your fingers on the keyboard is intimately connected to your thoughts untangling themselves. And now I have to untangle my thoughts a different way sometimes because typing is definitely a thing that causes inflammation. So you finished Brotherless Night using voice recognition software, right? You talked it out or no? Yeah, especially at the end, a significant part of the book was like there were scenes that I wrote using voice recognition and then the University of Minnesota accommodated me in part by assigning scribes to work with me. With me. Voice recognition software is great at composition or can be decent at least at composition and it's really bad at revision. Sure. Like, so 
the students did revision with me. One in, one in, I So I started reading the book aloud to one of them to go through my proofs. And that was really useful. That cleaned up my sentences. Well, something that you pointed out, I think, I think you talked about this in an interview about voice recognition software. You know, obviously not the ideal set of circumstances for a writer used to typing, but one thing that it does help you with is it prevents you from procrastinating maybe as easily as you could. That made a certain sense to me when you said it. I was like, oh yeah, like if you're using voice recognition software, it's harder to like break away from the text and go to Twitter because you have to hear yourself say it. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like Siri. It's like- you know, whatever it is, but yeah, you you know, you're, you it enforces a certain accountability. You have to narrate your fucking around, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should try that then. Maybe it might be time for me. So anyway, do you for the next project that you do, will do you anticipate that you will be typing it, or do you anticipate that you'll be using voice for the dr- early drafting? I'll probably have to use voice for at least some of the early drafting. Probably like sometimes it's kind of a percentage thing to kind of make sure that it just rests enough. But I would I would guess that fifty percent at least will have to be voice recognition. That's that's a little bit different of a creative it is of a creative process, right? I mean, I read my stuff aloud in this like weird mumbly voice. Like you know how you're supposed to read your stuff aloud, uh, especially yes. in like revision. I do that. I think it helps to hear it. But what I find when I'm reading is that like I start to go into a trance and I say, I do this like weird, weird voice that like my, my son caught me doing, like he was napping and then I was working next to him and then he woke up and I was like doing it and he's like, dad, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I was like, but anyway, I'm just wondering like, uh, like the differences, like uh, to talk it out like that might have some benefits, but it might also have some negatives? Like what, what's been your experience of it? Just out of curiosity, like in terms of what it yields. I mean, I think that there's a, there's of course a ton of self-consciousness. It makes a difference if there's another person there in both good and bad ways. I think for composition, it can be really difficult to have another person present, even in electronic or virtual space. And for revision, I found it to be really useful because then I wasn't kind of just doing the like mumbly skippy thing, Yeah, but I was like, I don't know, I was reading like I was like a tiny podium in my brain or something like, like, cause I had an audience. Um, I was gonna say it's like a performance almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just in the same way I would, I would have had to, to narrate my screen around. I would have, I was really reading to someone who was really listening. And so I think it is, it's harder for me too. Like if there's not someone there like, to read my work aloud to just myself, but you know, I don't know, like, what does that mean that people should do? Like, hire someone to listen to them. Right. right. Maybe, Maybe. I don't know. I guess if you have the resources or just like, because like most people, I mean, I don't know, say your spouse is your first reader. You'd have to get your, I don't know, them to sit there and listen while you read the whole book. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a big ask. Even for a spouse. Yeah. Maybe especially for a spouse. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big ask. It's a really big ask. So I don't know how that how one gets around that. Like maybe you find a friend who loves audiobooks and you like offer to be on the phone with them in their car every time they're they're commuting. I could record. I mean, you know, you could record. You've got a microphone. I guess you could record it and make a little audiobook for them. But I don't think that would work as well because I think the thing that helped me a lot was like the real time reaction. Uh, like right. I would read a sentence and then I would be like, that's a bad sentence. Yeah. Like, or I repeated a word and I didn't realize before that I had done that. And then I was lucky because like 
the scribe in particular who I was, I mean, both of them have, they have good instincts and, and like, I would ask their opinions and they would be honest about them. And like, I read most of the book to one of them and they kept track of continuity and things like that. I'd be like, was this clear to you? Like, do you remember that this other thing happened earlier? Like this word here is supposed to indicate this. Did you get that call back? It's like a kind of really close reading. Yeah. So maybe uh, that's the thing. Like, I mean, you got to sort of play the hand you're dealt, right? When it comes to health stuff and maybe, you know, it's, it's a bummer in some ways, but in other ways, maybe it's helping to give you insights that you might not have otherwise, or like a sensitivity to audience. That's always something I struggle with, you know? I think in the case of that particular reading aloud, it was a huge advantage. Well, I loved this novel. And I don't like, you. you know, I get a little bit skittish around like like book review culture and the way they toss around words. So, I, you know, I will say that this book feels masterpiece if that's a way of putting it. Feels that way to me. Like it just feels like like a book that just said everything that it wanted to say and just line by line got it right. And it was just so it worked so well at so many different levels. I don't know. It felt uh like a beautiful achievement to me. And I have been recommending it to people. So I applaud you for the effort and the endurance that it took, not only over the time and then in response in real time to history, but also dealing with health stuff. I mean, all the stuff that you had to go through to get this thing done. And now here you are and it's about to drop in the UK and you're going to be a global phenomenon. I mean, I hope you're ready for this. (laughs) Brad, thank you so much. That's, that's all so generous. And, and also there's, yeah, there's, yeah, who knows? And so there's so many wonderful books out there. And but this is one yeah, of them. I really, this is one of them. It, I really appreciate that. A, I really appreciate hey, that. It's a great book. I read a lot of books. This is a great book, and uh, it's a big achievement, and you should be proud of it. And I will look forward to whatever you come up with next. I wish you well, health-wise and creatively, and uh, thank you for taking all this time to talk with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, and uh, good luck with all of your creative endeavors. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Vivi Ganeshanathan. Her new novel, Brotherless Night, is available now from Random House. You can find her on the internet. Her website is viviganeshanathan.com. On Twitter, her handle is at V underscore V underscore G. At V underscore V underscore G. She's also on Instagram. I think she's on Facebook, too. Once again, the novel is called Brotherless Night. I can't recommend it highly enough. Read it. It's out there. If you would like to support this podcast, if you had an enjoyable experience and you would like to pay it forward, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. You can get merchandise. Check it out over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get another people t-shirt or sweatshirt, or a onesie for your newborn child, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just look for the t-shirt, scroll down, you'll see it. If you would like to sign up for my once a week email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter at either site. If you don't mind, if you have a couple of minutes and you would be kind enough to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen, I would appreciate it give it a rating, write a quick review. It helps. If you would like to watch the other people podcast, you can do that 
on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL. And when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch highlights on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Other PPL. If you have feedback, if you have thoughts, if you want to tell me a story, the email address for this podcast is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Last but not least, my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my book, you can do it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up next on The Other People Show, a conversation with Tracy Rose Payton, author of the debut novel, Night Wherever We Go. I had a great time talking with Tracy about her book, which is devastating and wonderful. So stay tuned. I will talk to you soon. Soon.